Uh, <laughs> good to be with you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, this morning that we have. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to us today, that you would quiet our minds and our hearts and allow us to receive uh, your word, receive your wisdom, and that you would speak to us today the words that we need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good to be with you. If, uh, if you're visiting, really glad that you're visiting. We are in Song of Songs, chapter six today, and we only have two more weeks in, uh, in this series, and then it'll be uh, a few weeks before Easter, so we'll do some pre-Easter stuff, and then after Easter, we're gonna get into 1 Thessalonians, and so that is what is on the docket. Um, if you've been with us uh, at any point in the past four weeks, you'll know that the, the Song of Songs we've said is not, uh, it is a poem, and it's a poem about uh, a romance, a relationship, a marriage, but it's not in chronological order. It doesn't go from when they meet to then getting married and then spending time in their marriage. Uh, we get different snapshots of different points that teach us various aspects of God's wisdom for marriage. And, and for love, and through that, our relationship with Jesus as well. And uh, that being said, what we see today seems to be at a point where the couple have been married for some time. And their love for one another over this time has matured and grown, which is an amazing thing to see. Uh, one of the most devastating mistakes people can make for their marriages is to believe that love is primarily a feeling uh, there are feelings associated with love. Of course they are. Uh, we, we understand that. But to think that that is what love essentially is, that kind of um, excited, like, infatuation, uh, butterflies that you feel when things are new, um, because if love is primarily a feeling, uh, feelings are, are subject to change for lots of reasons. But they do change, and when they do, you can convince yourself, I'm, I'm falling out of love, and I no longer have a reason to, to be with this person. Right? I've fallen out of love, uh, and, and I need to pursue my own happiness, and so I no longer have a reason to be with this person. Because in our culture, the highest virtue is pursuing your own happiness. Uh, even though, if you are married, this is a person that you've made vows to. You've made a public commitment to this person. You've been building your life together. You, you may have had children together. Like you've promised a certain future to them, but because feelings have changed and, and I need to be in a loving marriage and, and this is not love, this is not the love that I know, that can all get tossed away. Over the normal course of time, feelings are going to change. And that, like, that excitement, butterflies, infatuation, in the beginning feeling, that never lasts for anyone over any significant amount of time. It just changes. It's not the same. Um, it becomes a different kind of feeling, a different kind of love, but it doesn't mean that you fell out of love. Love is not primarily a feeling. It's primarily a decision. You can choose to love someone even when you're upset with them. You can choose to love someone when you're bored. You can choose to love someone when they're making it difficult to love them. You, you can love someone that you don't even particularly like for, for whatever reason. Like Jesus tells us to love your enemies. What do you think that means? What do you think that calls us to? What kind of action does that call us to? Love is a decision. 
every day, I am going to do actions of love for this person. I'm going to place more importance on your happiness than I place on my own happiness. I'm going to be unselfish. I'm going to show you attention and care. I'm going to make time for you. I'm going to treasure you. I'm not going to take you for granted. Two people waking up every morning and making that decision is the best marriage that you can be in. And after years and years of choosing that, their love is going to grow into something that that initial excited feeling could never touch, could never come close to. Something so rich and so deep and so worth all that effort. And on the way to that point, over that course of time, there are going to be times when it is easier and times when it's more difficult. But love is a decision that you can wake up every morning and make that decision. Look at this. This is how uh, the, the man, the husband, speaks to his wife after some time they've been together. This is Song of Solomon chapter 6, starting in verse 4. He says, You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slope of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from a washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young uh, women saw her and called her blessed the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So that in verse 10, he kind of compares her to uh, being bright as the dawn, beautiful as the moon, and then having the radiance of the sun. And when it's a, this is one of the reasons it seems like it's the progression of their relationship. That there was the dawn in the beginning, but now the sun has risen and the full radiance is in view. Um, and he, we see him using uh, many of the same compliments that he used in chapter three, which we know for sure was when they were married. So like the flock of goats and the, the sheep are your teeth. And like, it sounds weird to us, but we talked about it then. You can go back and listen to that one. And uh, it, it seems like this is his way of saying, you're just as beautiful to me now, after all this time, or even more beautiful uh, than you were on the, the very first night. The very first night. His appreciation for her has grown. He's not, uh, he's not taking her for granted. He's paying attention to her. He sees her. You know how like when you drive somewhere and uh, it's a route that you've been on many times and then you just look up and you're there and you're like, what was I doing? You know, and like, how did I, like you're just in autopilot mode. Uh, sometimes people go through life in autopilot and you just get places and you're not really paying attention. You don't really see and, and people do that in their lives. People do that in their marriage. And it's not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing to be checked out of your life. It's not a healthy thing to be uh, checked out of your marriage. There's so much that you're going to miss out on. Uh, they, they say familiarity breeds contempt. That only happens when you let it happen. Uh, that only happens when you're lazy about it. Like how many times have I heard this story? How many times have you heard the story of the person who got bored in their marriage and, and had an affair? 
and how much regret they ended up having at the end of it. Uh, because they were bored, honestly, because uh, they, they were lazy in their marriage. They weren't putting effort in. They were kind of checked out. They weren't waking up every morning and deciding, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to put effort into this person. I'm going to treasure this person. They allow themselves to get to a point where they're, they're bored and an opportunity comes along where they get some attention and it feels exciting again. And they made the mistake. They think love is primarily a feeling and they go, well, maybe I'm in a loveless marriage. Maybe this is, is my new love. Maybe this is what I should do. And, and then what happens? They take that opportunity and, and what happens after that? When the thing becomes known, however that happens, a family's torn apart, lives are torn apart. Do you have kids? Devastated. It's always going to hurt them. The spouse that you betrayed, devastated. More deeply wounded than anyone has wounded them before. I know there are cases when uh, divorce is the best option available, and, and it's because it's a bad situation. There's, there's abuse, there's uh, adultery, and it's not that divorce itself is a good thing, it's that it's the least bad option available. But you should never let any like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow type celebrity sell you the fairy tale that divorce is a good thing. That it could be a good thing, it could be a healthy thing, it could be the, you know, a great blessing in your life. It's not. It's not a good thing. It could be the best way out of a terrible thing, but it still causes pain, it still causes hurt. It's going to hurt your family. It can hurt the people around you. You know, they've studied this, that in like a friend group or a social group, if there's one couple that gets divorced, the chances of someone else in that social group divorcing skyrockets. Collateral damage. And that's just the impact on everyone else. It has an impact on you. If you're the one, if you're the one who broke those vows, you have to deal with the knowledge that you hurt all these people, you've caused all this pain, you're loaded with that guilt. I think it's the same as Esau. You know, in Genesis, Esau and Jacob, uh, Esau's really hungry, and uh, Jacob gets him to sell his birthright to him for a bowl of lentil soup. Not even a top five soup. For being honest, probably not in the top ten. His birthright. And he'd been promised through the, through the line of Abraham, that God is going to build a nation through you. God is going to bless the world through you. God's plan of redemption is going to march forward through you. And he says, I'm not interested in that. I want this soup. Because all he's thinking about in that moment is the hunger and how good that lentil soup looks. And you just think about what, what is he feeling there as soon as the bowl is empty? The hunger's gone. He has got an empty bowl in front of him. And he's lost something permanently. Something he can never get back. All because you didn't learn to appreciate what you had. You didn't form the disciplined habits to choose to love every single day. Uh, Megan and I, I don't know if, um, if this is like just us or if, uh, you know, all of you do, like maybe we're weird, but sometimes we talk about, uh, like, what would I do if you died? 
uh, and it's not like anything we're hoping for. It's like a, just like a thought, like a crazy thing. If the unexpected happened, um, what, what would happen? And I think about the prospect of starting all over and dating someone new for the first time, and that is just like the worst. I, it is the last thing that I ever want to do. Like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so blessed with Megan. I, I, I trust her. She's dependable. She's fun to be with. She's a great mom. She's, great, she's a great wife. She loves Jesus. She doesn't do anything that, like, I really can't stand. Um, and, like, we get annoyed about the same things, which is nice. Like, couples who complain together stay together. <laughs> there probably is research on that. You should look it up. Uh, one, one of the reasons that starting over just sounds so awful to me is I feel like like all the bullets that I dodged with Megan and all the things I love about her, I feel like I get hit by all of those in like just things that, that you don't necessarily know about a person when you get married and you find out when you really start to spend time together. Uh, she's not perfect, and I'm not perfect, uh, but she is exactly what I want. And I, I know that, and I never want to forget that. And I want her to know that that's what I think. Um, it's, it's important not just to, to feel that way and to think that way. You're exactly what I want about the person that you're married to. It's important that they know that you, you feel that way, that you appreciate them, that you love them. Both of them in, uh, in the song, the husband and the wife, they're, they're both so good at this. Um, they're, they're both so good about expressing that for one another. And uh, you see in verse four, so he calls her beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem. So these are both cities, and they're both impressive cities. So Jerusalem is the capital. And, and later, when the kingdom splits in two to Israel and Judah, uh, Terza is briefly the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel before it moves to Samaria. And, uh, and he says, you're awesome as an army with banners, and turn your eyes away from me. I'm so overwhelmed. Uh, he seems to be like so in awe of her that he's almost got like this fear in it. And it makes me think of the office when the manager, Michael, is asked the question, would you rather be feared or loved? He says, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Uh, like that's like what he's describing. Like you're so great. Like, I, like I, there's this fear that you're, you're too good for me. Like, I, I'm afraid of how much I love you. In, uh, in verse 8, he describe, describes the, the royal consort. So he says there's 60 queens and there's 80 concubines, virgins without number. Um, Solomon, we know, or we're told, that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines, um, which may not just, it may not be an exact figure because the Bible uses numbers symbolically sometimes, and those are like really uh, exact, like whole numbers. Uh, but even if it's symbolic, it's more than one. <laughs> like, he's got a lot. And, uh, and, and it's the same thing here. Like, there's, there's a lot. But it seems like he's, he's pointing that out and going, look, there's, there's queens and there's people in the royal concert, consort. And, and like, there's a lot of beautiful women out there in the world. But you're the only one for me. I, I only have eyes for you. I'm only looking at you. And I love that. That is, uh, that's one of the ways that you decide to love your spouse every day. I'm only going to look at you. I'm not going to look anywhere else and wonder what if. You know, what if this? What if her? What if things were different? And I ended up with, uh, what if someone like this? Not, 
exploring things in your thoughts, exploring things in your mind, but just looking at the person you're with. I'm only going to look at you. I'm only going to think about you. If you're married, are you choosing to look only at the person that you've married? Are you waking up every morning and choosing to love them, to see them and appreciate them and put them before yourself? We do have uh, one, a group that's run before, but a group that's run by one of our elders that is, uh, goes through uh, sacred marriage. And it's four married couples or couples even who are about to get married. And uh, if, if it seems like this could be a blessing to you and helpful to you, and how could it not? <laughs> you know, how could it not be a good way to just retune yourself and, uh, and make sure that I'm, I'm making the decision, I'm growing in the right way, and uh, so it would encourage you to take that step and, uh, and, and join up with, with that group and spend some time with your spouse uh, just growing together and, uh, and refocusing and recentering yourself on your marriage. Um, the young women in the song here, they, they call the woman who's married that, that he's speaking about, they say, you're, you're blessed. And uh, another way that blessed gets translated is happy. You know, she's happy. They're happy together. This is a happy marriage. And then in verse 11, she speaks, and she says this, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. This is not uh, the clearest verse in the Song of Songs, uh, especially like verse 12 here is um, you know, we don't know exactly how best to understand this, uh, but we do see some clear things in here. So first, in verse 11, it's springtime again. And we saw that earlier in the song, uh, when it was describing the point that they're beginning their relationship, because they were talking about uh, catch us the little foxes before they run wild and they ruin the things that are trying to grow. Uh, it was springtime then. It was springtime then, and now further on into their marriage, it's springtime again. And there really is some, some great wisdom in this because uh, your, your relationship and your life is not just like one cycle through the year. It's not like you get springtime once and then you move into summer once and fall once and winter once and you only experience those things one time. Uh, things happen throughout your life and you experience multiple seasons. Like you're gonna have more than one winter that you live through. Like in your life and in any relation, there's gonna be more than one winter where it's a season of hardship, it's, it's a season of loss, it feels darker, it's colder. Life can be really hard. But you're also gonna have more than one spring when, when new things are starting, there's new chapters, uh, good things are starting to bloom and, and things are, are looking brighter and brighter. In marriage, it, it's like when you start out, uh, most people experience, like that's the springtime. You get married and you start out and it's exciting and new and, and you have all this time that you spend together and that's great. Um, and then, you know, if, uh, you know, things happen and it, it doesn't stay that way forever, you know. Uh, you have kids. It's the winter. 
Uh, it's the winter for your marriage. It's not like a total winter in your whole life because that's like it's new springtime on its own. Um, but like your relationship changes in pretty drastic ways. Like the time that you have for each other, uh, the time that you just have for the two of you and the freedom to just kind of go and do things, uh, those things die. Uh, but then your kids grow older and they're gone and you get springtime again. Like there are those seasons throughout your marriage, throughout your life. Um, and again, to be clear, children are a blessing and like it's, it's a springtime in a different way, but you can have two seasons that are different at once about different things, if that makes sense. Um, work can impact the season that you're in. Health can impact it. Uh, it, it. You know, money problems could be an issue. If you're grieving, that could be something that throws you into a winter. But there's always going to be another season where good things start to grow and bloom again. As long as you stay with it, as long as you keep making the decision every day, regardless of how everything else in life feels, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be with you. If you don't give up, if you do give up, then yeah, that's it. Um, But if you stay, one day the, the season will change. I love this about the song, that it's such an equal thing, and uh, and so she takes initiative just as much as he does, or more, and they're both so expressive together, and like, you know, verse 12 is not the most clear thing to understand, but the feeling in the sense that we do get from it is that she's expressing her love for him and her closeness with him. Let's keep reading in verse 13. This one's a little bit confusing, but in verse 13 it says, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Did everyone get that? Do I have to spend time on this? We can just, yeah. Okay, so the thing that's like first off confusing about this is that the the subheadings that tell you who's speaking those are supplied by translators for your convenience. It's not actually part of the scripture itself. And so when it says the others and it says he's speaking, that's the the translator's best idea of who's speaking. But this is debated and different translations slap different labels on this. Uh, And so it could be that like there's this chorus of other men who see how beautiful she is and like, hey, come let us look at you. And then he speaks up and he goes, not on my watch. And it feels like threatening, like there's a battle going on. Um, And it could be that. Um, It could also be that he is speaking in the plural. So he's saying the first thing. And like a person speaking in the plural like that isn't as rare as you think it is. Because you you could say like, uh, let's see, you know, let us see this and you're just talking about yourself, but you're actually using the plural. So that happens, and then, in that case, she would be responding in the third person, and I do think there's maybe a stronger case for that understanding because of what follows in chapter seven, which we're gonna read. Um, But anyways, Shulamite, if that part's confusing to you, this is a feminine version of the name Solomon. So Solomon, and Shulamite, those are the the masculine and the feminine, and the name Solomon comes from the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, uh, which I think is something we're going to explore in what we get into next week, Um, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not for certain that the man in this uh, relationship that's presented to us is meant to actually be Solomon, and this is actually one of his marriages, or if, uh, 
he just sometimes gets used as an example because there's an association with him. We saw that in chapter three, especially at the wedding. And so he's kind of compared to Solomon. And so in this case, it would be, you know, they're uh, calling her the Shulamite as a way of expressing that, you know, they're, they're so close to one another. Um, and so the exchange here, it seems like she might be picking up on, on some of the military language that he used. And so he's saying, come on, let's, let, me, let me take a look at you. Let's see you. And she goes, um, you know, why would you look at me as upon a dance before two armies? Kind of like a playful response, like, do you think you can handle it? Like, you know, I'm awesome as an army with banners. This might be a little, a little bit dangerous for you. And like that thing about the dance before two armies, it, it seems to be like if you observed a battle from kind of a distance and you saw how the two armies met and they would kind of push and pull on the line and almost be like a dance together, but it's this battle, it's kind of mesmerizing and, and you can't look away. And so, uh, and so then we read this in chapter seven. He starts speaking and he says, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And then she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. So just before, and also in this, he uses some of the same compliments that he'd already given her on their wedding night, but here he does kind of change things up. So he doesn't have the same play, the same thing that he uses every single time, because that, that would get boring. Uh, on the wedding night, he starts with her head, and he starts complimenting her moving down, and here he starts with her feet and starts complimenting her moving up. Uh, variety is the spice of life, as they say. Uh, and, and maybe possibly starting with her feet because she's dancing, and that's the thing that is catching his eye first. And then moving up, and he says lots of nice things about her, and if you care about getting into like the actual meaning of every single line, you can look that up on your own. It is kind of a sensual poem. And we don't, like, that's all you need to know about it for this. I'm not <laughs> going further. Um, he compares her to a tree and, uh, and says, like, I want to climb my tree. This is like a, a tasteful way of expressing his desire to be intimate with her. And it actually reminds me of that song, The Joker, by uh, Steve Miller Band. Like, I really love your peaches, want to shake your tree. It's not talking about peaches. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. You thought it was about peaches. It's not. And uh, just like in here, the tree is a metaphor. We know because he tells us, I'm talking about your breasts, um, which good for him um, that he can be that direct. He, uh, you know, he talks about your, your mouth, the, uh, 
the love that they're sharing through their kids. It's like wine. It goes down smoothly, um, which is what you want from wine. Like, you don't want, like, the burning, coughing, <laughs> you know, of, like, bad wine. It's like, no, this is the good wine. This is, we can both enjoy this. Um, and then uh, she's, she says something fascinating. So she says, it goes down smoothly. She says something fascinating. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. It was the third time that she said something similar to this. Uh, it's, been, it's been repeated. You know, first it was, uh, my beloved is mine, I am my beloved's. And then it's, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. And here, she doesn't even say that uh, my beloved is mine. She says, his desire is for me. She, she knows that he loves her. And she's fully secure in that. She doesn't feel like she needs to hold on to him or keep him somehow. He just, she just knows that he's with her. And she's safe in that knowledge. She's secure in that knowledge. But there's more to this. This is like really fascinating. So the word that is used for desire here is a, a rare word in the Bible, in the Hebrew. It's only used three times in the whole Bible. And it seems like this is done on purpose. Um, the first time, well, not the first time, but, but one of the times, Genesis 4, in Genesis 4, God is speaking to Cain. Remember Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. He's speaking to Cain when he has this flare-up of jealousy over, uh, over Abel. And, uh, and God speaks to him in that moment, and he says this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. It's like laying an ambush. Its desire is for you. It's contrary to you. It is not for your good. The reason that sin desires you is not to give the thing that it promises, but to destroy you and, and to bring you into ruin. Sin lies. Sin is a liar. Temptation is a liar. It promises you great things, and it always knows it's going to give you something else. Like, all sin wants to do is get you to uh, reject God, reject what he says, don't listen to him, because if you don't listen to him, you could have something much better. Drive you away from God, and then, in that broken relationship with God, you are brought to a place where, where you suffer. The other place we read this rare word is in Genesis 3, so it happens pretty quickly. Uh, and this is directly after Adam and Eve rebel against God, they, they listen to Satan, they take the fruit, and now God is pronouncing the curses for their rebellion against him. And speaking to Eve, he says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And there's some debate over, like, what is the exact meaning of this? Um, and some of the translations say, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The ESV puts it, as, it, it uh, your desire shall be contrary to him. It's clear that in this context, there's a negative connotation. Just like in Genesis 4, it's a negative thing. Sin doesn't want great things for you. And this seems to be about conflict in marriage. Uh, desires that are contrary to one another, wanting different things, maybe an ego battle. And yet for her, 
the husband is going to be in a, a position to rule over you, and it's just going to cause friction in the marriage. Here in the song, though, in the Song of Songs, she says, referencing Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And the context here is undoubtedly positive. His desire is for me. His desire is for my good. I feel secure in this. Our God, as much as he's the one who pronounces the curse for sin, and he's a God of justice, he is also a God of grace and a God of redemption. And through this marriage, through these two people who are honoring their covenant commitment to one another, and over the course of time, choosing to love each other, continuing to, to choose to love each other over the years, their love grows to a point where she's almost experienced a small measure of redemption from that curse for sin. Not that she's experiencing redemption in a salvation way or salvation apart from the good news of Jesus way, but it's somehow restorative. And and marriage itself is meant to point us to Jesus, so this makes sense. We've said it through this whole series, and I'll say it again, the Song of Songs, it's God's wisdom for marriage and for love, and because of that, it teaches us about our relationship with Jesus, where Paul tells us the, the church is the bride of Christ. And as we look at these people in the song, as we look at how they've lasted in their marriage, not by treating love as a feeling or something that they could fall out of when circumstances become less than ideal, but by the discipline of choosing every single day to love one another. And looking at them and seeing and knowing that there are seasons to life and there are seasons to marriage, it's the same thing in faith. It's the same thing in your relationship with Jesus. There are winters when you struggle more and you feel more distant and the world feels more dark, but if you stay with him, if you stay with Jesus, if you continue walking with him, another season of springtime will come again. Paul says this in Galatians 6, he says, and do not let us grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When we're not in that season of like reaping and seeing the results and the rewards and everything that you want to see, you're not seeing the results, you're not seeing the change, you're not, you know, feeling the the warmth of the sun and seeing the signs of good times ahead. It just looks dark as you look out. It's tempting to give up. We get tired. It's hard work. It can start to feel meaningless. Following Jesus can start to feel meaningless if you're not seeing and experiencing the results that you want to see and it goes longer and longer and longer. You know, if your life is not easier, it's more difficult and growing more and more so. If you're not happy, you're getting more and more miserable, you're feeling more and more hopeless. Some of you here today, that might be where you are. It might be how you feel. It might be what your experiences and your circumstances are kind of putting you in a position to be. You're wondering, where is Jesus? Does God really love me? Is it worth it? Is it worth worshiping him, following him, 
praying to him, giving him my whole life when it feels like I'm not, I'm not receiving anything. But love is not primarily a feeling, it's primarily a decision. And to endure in faith to the end, loving Jesus to the end. The great command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, regardless of the circumstances that you're in or what's going on. How do we do that? The Apostle John tells us, and he tells us in, uh, in the simplest terms. He says, we love because he first loved us. The reason any of us can make a decision to love Jesus is because Jesus first made a decision to love us. While we were sinners, and before we ever loved him, before it even entered into our minds or our hearts to love him, like when you were in rebellion against the authority of God, like, yeah, God, you've like created the world, you've created me, you gave me life, and like put this whole beautiful world together, and I'm in it, and everything that I have is ultimately from you. Like, that's all true, but leave me alone. I don't care. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to go my own way. Thanks for the stuff, but I don't care about you. Leave me alone. Imagine, like, the most loving parents you can think of who do everything right. They, they love their kids. They want their best for their kids. They're not spoiling them. They do tell them no when they need to be told no, but they've provided everything, and they've been parents who show grace and patience, and they genuinely love their kids, and those kids grow up, and they say, I don't care about you. Leave me alone. It's awful. While we were sinners, and when making the decision to love us, would cost him everything because it would put him on the cross because it's the only way that we could be forgiven and reconciled to him. He made that decision for you. John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loves us to the end. His love for you endures everything. He's, he's made his decision. His decision will never change. If anything could change Jesus' decision to love you, it would have been the cross. And the cross does not change his mind. His love for you will never change. He doesn't, he doesn't love you more when you're doing everything right and love you less when you start doing things wrong. His decision to love you doesn't change. When your faith is in Jesus, when your faith is in him and, and his work that he did on the cross to forgive you and reconcile you to him and give you the hope of eternal life, it's all because of what he did. It's not because of how good you are or the things that you've done. When, when, that, when your faith is in Jesus, that's when you can say the same thing that the bride says in the song, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I belong to Jesus. He has me. I'm his. 
and his desire is for me. He wants good things for me. He wants the best things for me. He wants my joy. He wants my peace. He wants my eternity. When Satan tempts Eve in the garden, he does it by accusing God of not having his desire be for her best good. He says, he's holding out on you. He wants to ruin your potential. If you don't listen to him, if you throw off this restriction that he's placing on you, you could be like God yourself. You can have your own authority. You can make your own decisions. You don't need him. Satan is a liar. Sin is a liar. Promises you things that if you just don't listen to God, then you can finally have all the happiness you wanted, all the peace you wanted, all the fulfillment you wanted. You could have your full potential realized, but it can only happen if you throw off the restraints that he's trying to put on you. But his desire is contrary to you. It's not for your good. It's to ruin you. Jesus desires the best for you, and we know he desires the best for you because he himself suffered for your sake. He suffered everything for your sake. Your decision to love Jesus, it comes from and is a result of his decision to love you. It starts with his love for you. When you understand that Jesus loves me, he wants the best for me, I can be forgiven, I could be set free, I could have eternal life in him. when you make that decision to respond to his love for you with your love in return, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna trust you. The longer that you walk with him, although there are seasons, the more those, those good things will grow and deepen and become better and better. Just like in marriage. I hope that you make that decision. I hope that you have made it. And maybe some of you here today, you haven't yet. I hope that you understand Jesus' love for you, the decision he made for you so that you could respond and make your decision for him. And if you have, I, I hope that you realize you can't just check out of this and everything's gonna be fine. You also need to choose every day. I'm gonna love Jesus. I'm gonna trust Jesus. I'm gonna follow Jesus. That's what makes your faith and your life with Jesus grow better and healthier, more full of joy, more full of peace. Let me pray for us.